Welcome to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. I'm Alec. And I'm Adam. And before you get into today's episode, this is a reminder to follow us on social media. We're at Fly on the Wall Pod on Twitter and Instagram, and you can find us on Facebook. If you ever have any feedback or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. Please reach out. On the pod today, we are excited to have Olivia Allaire Dalton. Olivia is founder of Dalton Strategies and a senior advisor to the Human Rights Campaign. An experienced leader in strategic communications and marketing, she has built an impressive track record advising top officials, national nonprofits, Fortune 100 companies, and major issue campaigns. She draws on 15 years at the forefront of politics, policy, and media as a former spokeswoman to First Lady Michelle Obama, President Obama's campaigns, then U.S. Senator Joe Biden, Transportation Secretary Ray LaHood, and the Human Rights Campaign. We are lucky to have had her on campus as a fellow this semester, so let's welcome Olivia to the podcast. Olivia, thanks so much for taking time to speak with us. We're so excited to have you on the podcast this week. Um, we, want to, we want to start by talking to you a little bit about your career path, um, just jumping in at the beginning uh, when you graduated Georgetown in 2006, and then you went over to Senator Biden's office to become his uh, deputy press secretary. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about what motivated you initially to go into political comms. Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's been really special to be back here at, um, at Georgetown on the, on the hilltop in general. Um, and sort of surreal to be back here uh, doing your podcast. It's amazing. Um, but, um, you know, Georgetown really lit a passion for public service in me. I spent my undergrad years here doing every internship I could. I think I did internships all four years every semester um, for advocacy organizations up on the Hill, for political committees, trying to get my arms around, you know, what kind of work was interesting to me in the change making space, because I knew that much. Um, what I was good at, <laughs> and where I, what I discovered was that sort of my skills intersected with my interest in politics in political communications. I was I actually entered Georgetown as an English major, um, and uh, was a really strong writer, and uh, was trying to figure out how to put that to good use working in uh, advocacy or politics. And so uh, I was, um, I actually interned at the Democratic National Committee my senior year at Georgetown. Uh, and I applied for the political department because I didn't know what else the DNC did. <laughs> and they said, well, what's your major? And I said, well, I, 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 I was an English major and I'm now switched to a government major. And they said, oh, you're a good writer. You can work in political comms. And then I cr- quickly sort of realized that's where the action was at and the rest is history. Right. So um, after you worked in Senator Biden's office, you moved on to the Obama campaign and then um, to the Department of Transportation as Deputy Press Secretary and then Press Secretary. Did you find that there was um, different strategies you utilized in communications in terms of working on a campaign versus working for an official government agency? Sure. I think, you know, the tools and the tactics are all universally applicable, but the role and the function that you fill have to be different, right? So... You know, working in um, in Congress or on a congressional campaign or on a presidential campaign, um, you know, often things can be contentious and scrappy, and you're out there hustling for every vote, for every uh, interview you can you can get to persuade people. Um, working in the administration, you know, suddenly, you know, we I felt you know, but <laughs> it's a sort of like being the dog that caught the car, <laughs> <laughs> where suddenly you won the election, you you know, and now you have to sort of figure out how to run the country and Mm -hmm. um, it was a real uh, that was a real shift in my thinking Um, you know I uh, I think for everybody too um, across the the campaign who went into the administration because suddenly you know 
you know, you know, Barack Obama said it best when he said, there's no blue America or red America, there's only the United States of America. That was the kind of president he sought to be, and that's the kind of administration we had to run. We weren't going to be an administration for just the Democrats. We were going to be an administration who worked with Republican members of Congress and Democrats alike, um, Republican mayors and Democratic mayors, Republican constituents and Democratic constituents. So um, it just, you know, uh, the, the skills were the same, but the work was different. and. Um, and incredibly fascinating. And of course, the Department of Transportation, we had a tremendous role to play in really critical issues from supporting the economic recovery to public safety. Right. Like, you know, dealing with auto recalls and plane safety. And, you know, these were incredibly important issues. Um, and so I think, you know, being in the administration required a level of maturity that. Um, sometimes doesn't exist in the just brazen, brass-knuckled arena of politics and um, was a really fulfilling sort of uh, period of my career. And so then after the stint at the Department of Transportation, you went over to uh, the re-elect as Michelle Obama's press secretary, yeah. um, which is seems like a whole different um, thing, staffing <laughs> a new a principal now. And uh, so how, how did that experience differ from, from your previous ones? Well, I mean, it's a dream job working for Mrs. Obama, my goodness. Um, could you imagine a cooler boss? Uh, she honestly like no, no, no. <laughs> um, you know she working um, with her was absolutely just the dream of a lifetime. I mean she um, is such a dynamic, brilliant uh, person, um, but you know just tremendously. I, I would say two things tremendously inspiring and relentlessly positive in whatever circumstance you put her in. Um, but also she could do things that no one else could do, um, both for the president and for uh, the campaign. And so working for her in the reelection was just absolutely, you know, uh, fascinating because we, we had, I got to do so many cool, fun things that nobody else got to do, right? A lot of people can do the CNN interviews, but only Michelle Obama can go on Ellen DeGeneres and, right. you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, do, an, in, do interviews with Ross the, Ross the intern and, um, you know, team up with celebrities for a, you know, get out the vote challenge for, you know, young voters. I mean, we did so many fun things um, during that campaign to sort of meet people where they are and engage voters. And those are the sort of fondest memories I have of 2012 is, you know, being out there with her and, um, and really trying to meet people where they were and engage people in the, in the process in a different way. And she was able to do that like no one else. Definitely. Um, more recently, you've been tapped to run major issue campaigns around um, issues like marriage equality and keeping the Affordable Care Act. Um, specifically for the issue of marriage equality, how did you find yourself in that role and what was it like to fight for such a divisive but also issue that affects so many people very personally? Yeah, the story of, uh, of that is, you know, I... Um after the re-election campaign in 2012 ended in November of 2012 um, with a victory, I had a decision to make about whether or not I was going to go back into the administration or do something different. And I was making that sort of decision about my path when in December of 2012, the Supreme Court granted two cases. They were going to hear um, two cases challenging Prop 8, the California uh, ban on marriage equality, um, and the Defense of Marriage Act, which was the federal 1996 law that banned the federal government from um, recognizing same-sex marriages. 
And so, you know, very quickly, the LGBTQ movement, I think, did a very smart thing and recognized that um, the stakes were so high in this moment, they had to sort of mount an all-out campaign, and everyone had to hold hands, be singing from the same hymnal. Um, and, you know, sort of parallel track, like, you know, messaging that supported these cases and amicus strategy that supported these cases, but also use this moment to drive public awareness and build public support for marriage equality. Um, because we were reaching a t tipping point. I mean, in 2012, that was such a consequential year for marriage equality politically. Um, for the first time in history, in four states, marriage equality won at the ballot box that year. Um, and uh, who could forget that Joe Biden famously, infam infamously, inf infamously or famously, depending on your point of view, um, got in front of the president and unbeat the press by coming out in support of marriage yeah. equality right. um, and set off sort of a domino effect of, uh, of you know, um, support for marriage equality at, you know, in Washington and beyond. So, um, you know, politically, 2012 was very consequential, and moving into 2013, these two Supreme Court cases were incredibly consequential. And I was asked if I would consider leading the communications war room around these two cases, the Supreme Court, and I don't think I took a breath before saying yes. I realized in that moment that there was no sort of more noble, you know, cause or way to put all of my experience working on campaigns and politics to use than to try and make a this seismic shift and if I had said no I think I would have regretted it forever um, you know right. if, if we had failed and so it was just to this day um, one of the most consequential and important things I've ever you know had the honor of being a part of sure so then you know you had an opportunity to work really closely and travel with Jim Obergefell who of course was the plaintiff uh, in that landmark case yeah that, in 2015 the next right. time it came around the Supreme Court right. Jim Obergefell was the named plaintiff yeah right in that case um and so just talk to us about uh what it was like winning that case um and the experience you had working with him um Jim is somebody I absolutely adore personally and professionally and I should also say that one of the things that I think often gets overlooked is um and Jim would be the first to, to say this is there are so many unsung heroes of the marriage movement because, you know, you go back to the proppy couple, couples and um, in the Chris Perry, Sandy Steer, Jeff uh, Katami, and um, uh, Paul Katami and Jeff Cirillo, uh, the Prop 8 couples, um, Edie Windsor in the Doma case, all of the plaintiffs that um, in every state who fought to overturn state level bans on marriage equality. Mm -hmm. There are literally hundreds, if not thousands of people who fought marriage equality bans at the state level. Um, and Jim's case was actually, uh, he was the named plaintiff on a, um, a consolidated set of cases from the Sixth Circuit that came to the Supreme Court. So there were literally dozens of plaintiffs at the court that day um, on that decision day in June of 2015. But one of the things that I think, you know, uh, you know we all always now look back on marriage equality as a, that victory is a time of joy, and it certainly is. But when I think about two of my heroes, Jim Obergefell and Edie Windsor, who I had the privilege of knowing as well, one of the things that strikes me the most, and not to be too maudlin about it, but um, is that you know they're both widowers. Um, for them, marriage equality came too late to enjoy, um, you know, uh, enjoy equality in the in their relationships for the fullness of their lifetimes. And, you know, Edie Windsor says, said something on the day that her case was decided that stays with me. She said, um, you know, she was asked what she hopes this means for um, America. And she said, I hope this means the end of stigma and shame and fear. I hope that 
young people all across this country um, born today, born in a world where this discrimination doesn't exist and can grow up to imagine themselves in loving relationships, having families. And, um, and it was just beautiful. Um, you know, because for people like Edie and Jim, you know, the marriage equality victory was um, justice, but it was um, also too late for them to enjoy personally. Right. Um, that victory uh, and at the time occurred under the Obama administration. And when you initially got into advocacy for SKD, Knickerbocker, and Human Rights Campaign, it was under the Obama uh, administration. But now that there is a Republican president, how have you had to sort of recalibrate your strategies in terms of political communications and advocacy um, with the fact that the administration doesn't necessarily endorse many of the things you're advocating mm -hmm. for? I think it's definitely a tough time, right? I mean, um, the uh, in 2016, we not only lost the White House, we lost both chambers of Congress. Um, and uh, with it, we knew immediately that we were going to um, lose one Supreme Court seat because Merrick Garland's seat was opened at the time of the election. Um, and then we very quickly lost another one. And so, uh, you know, there's absolutely no question that the you know, those in, on the progressive side are, are fighting an uphill battle right now. Every day there's an onslaught of, of attacks, and some days you don't, it feels like duck hunt. You just don't know where the ducks are going to come out of the bushes um, with this administration. Um, so, you know, it, you know it's, it's, it's been challenging, but one of the, the pieces of hope that I would offer, and one of the things that I think is if they're if challenged to come up with a silver lining in this period of time <laughs> um, that I would offer is that um, for the first time in our history, people are engaged. Um, people are engaged and organizations are engaged on a level I have not seen in my lifetime thus, or my career thus far. Um, in these elections we just had in Louisiana and Kentucky, right. uh, we had just enormous <clears throat> surges in voter turnout. I just, um, you know, I've watched also as uh, social justice movements in this era um, have come together. I mean, I, you know, um, you know that whether you're in the LGBTQ movement or you're fighting for immigrant rights or asylum seekers or you're fighting for um, criminal justice reform or reproductive rights, I mean, these organizations are also coming together in a way to fight um, alongside each other and closing ranks in a way that I've not seen before in my career in advocacy. And I think. Um, you know, if we can, out of this moment, grow a more engaged uh, citizenship, if we can um, forge alliances across social justice movement that social justice movements that strength, strengthen us all, um, then there's a chance that we can outlive this administration and this horrible period of our history um, and emerge sort of on the other side stronger than we were before. Yeah. So along with the new president has come some uh, new methods of communication from the president, <laughs> um, to, to say the least. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, whether it's his very unconventional tweeting style uh, or, or his very unscripted rallies, um, he communicates unlike a lot of presidents that we've seen in the past. Has the difference in tone and style and method coming from the Oval Office uh, may you rethink or reevaluate the communication strategy you use and how you reach uh, people and how you reach voters in your work? 
I think one of the great questions of our time, Will, is, you know, sort of has, how badly has Donald Trump broken the system, right? I mean, he's sort of proven that you can wake up, a president can wake up and tweet to 100 million people whatever is on his mind without any filter and drive news cycles um, and bring entire, you know, he certainly has, you know, brings the entire Republican Party to heel every single day with whatever he decides to say on that, you know, at any particular moment. Um, the question is really whether, um, you know, I don't know that we'll ever fully go back to normal, but whether, you know, whether to some extent we'll be able to recover from this, you know, some of our norms from this time period. I just think, you know, um, it's such a radical departure of, you know, a protocol process of our, you know, you know, our all of our norms um, and values that we share as, a, as Americans, the way that he operates on, an, you know, every single day that, you know, um, will the next president do things differently or, uh, learn the worst lessons from his behavior. I certainly hope it's the former. Um, right. I certainly hope that we can reclaim um, some of what we've lost, but I don't know that we'll ever completely go back to normal. Right, well, on that very happy note, I guess. Um, no, but there is one thing we like to do here at Fly on the Wall mm -hmm. um, called the lightning round, where we give you a couple of questions and you give us um, some quick answers. So nothing too hard, I promise. Awesome, no. hit me. <laughs> yeah. So the first thing is, um, you mentioned a little bit about your time working with uh, First Lady Michelle Obama before. Mm -hmm. What was your favorite memory of working with her? Um, can I do two? Sure. I've got two. Um, one sentimental, one fun. Okay. My, my the fun one um, was uh, I, the she spoke on the first night of the Democratic National Convention, um, a committee convention in Charlotte in 2012. And I had been stressing out for about a week beforehand about, about the speech, how everything was going to go, all of our plans. And, um, you know, I, I was practically hyperventilating, hyperventilating by the time she arrived on site. And um, she walked in, gracious as ever, you know, um, cool as a cucumber, and, you know, asked me to, like, you know, I launched into a mile-a-minute briefing on what... And she just stopped me and she looked me dead in the eye and she d gave me this little, I'm doing this in this, in the fly on the wall podcast studio, but she did this little <laughs> dance with me. She like made me dance with her and just chill out <laughs> because I, you know, she could, my stress level was palpable. And, you know, in that moment, it was so funny. I think she actually did. Um, she got me to do like the, the Austin Powers going down the stairs behind the couch <laughs> move or whatever, but she just made me loosen up because, you know, and in that moment, I, I just thought that was so tremendously cool of her and fun and, um, and uh, you know, I, I just also was just marveled at how her stress, stress level was in the basement while mine was like, you know, through the roof um, on, that, on that particular day. And then my other sort of sentimental memory is we happened to be on a, on a plane en route to a campaign event. Um, the morning that the um, Supreme Court was set to decide the first um, Affordable Care Act challenge. So the Republicans were trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act that we fought so hard to um, pass in 2011. And on the campaign trail, we were in midair expecting a call at any moment to find out 
um, what the Supreme Court did. So we all, of course, the call comes in. We're all hanging around the phone to hear whatever you know, whatever's going to come um, through the other end of the line. And when we found out that the Affordable Care Act had survived, there just were cheers and tears that just erupted on the plane. Everyone started hugging each other, and you know, it was it was really special to be in that environment with so many other people who shared. Um, the deep concern for our healthcare system, just because it wasn't political, right? The 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 tears and the cheers and the hugging, they were because we all knew somebody who was going to be impacted by, you know, um, the Affordable Care Act surviving that challenge and, you know, not being not running out a lifetime cap on their coverage or, right. you know, suffering from a pre-existing condition or something. So it was beautiful. So, like you mentioned, you are a fellow Hoya, as yes. are we and most of our listeners. Um, so we need to get you in on this contentious Georgetown debate. Uh, <laughs> what is the best freshman dorm and why? Um, I, I don't, I don't really know. I don't know how to answer this question. I lived in Darnell, so I, um, I actually, <laughs> I don't have a lot of. Uh, um, my first year on campus, I lived in Darnell, so I, I, um, I, I don't really have a lot of. I don't know if I can weigh in and settle this debate. I thought you were going to ask me about YZs or buoys or something truly, uh, truly contentious. Yeah, those are. That's also a very uh, contentious debate around here. I think. Um, we'll let you reserve your judgment on that one. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, our last lightning round question is: What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Um. I think. This is hard. I think um, you know the best advice I have ever get gotten um, was actually from my mother, who told me to. <laughs> uh, you know, she's told me in various points in my career when you know there, everybody has their peaks and their valleys, and um, my mom is fond of saying that the cream always rises to the top, which is. Um, her way of saying that even when sort of life gets you down or somebody else does something really terrible, um, that things have a way of evening out in the end. And that if you're a good person and you work really hard and you show good judgment, um, that in the, in the end, the cream rises to the top. And I, you know, um, I find that really valuable because it's the thing I kind of keep going back to even when things get really tough on the campaign trail or um, in life. Um, it's a nice mantra to have in the back of my mind. Definitely. Well, Olivia, thank you so much for joining us on Fly on the Wall and for being a fellow with us here this semester. It's been a great semester and we've been lucky to have you. Thank you so much for having me. That was Olivia Allaire Dalton and that's a wrap on this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. If you haven't followed us already on social media, don't forget to follow us at Fly on the Wall Pod on Twitter and Instagram, and we are also on Facebook at Find the Wall Pod. And if you have any questions whatsoever, don't hesitate to email us at findthewallpodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.